This is The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Football Weekly. Let's start with some Champions League. Marko Ornotovic does it on a temperate evening in Milan, even if not at the first time of asking. After missing a couple of sitters, he almost misses the winner, but they all count and it means Inter take a slender lead into the away leg at Atleti. Meanwhile, Dortmund get a draw in Eindhoven and are surely favourites to progress now. Then some midweek Premier League for you. Not that anyone in the UK could see it, but if you take my word for it, Manchester City overcome a stubborn Brentford at the Etihad as the title race gets even tighter. On Monday, Everton and Palace played out at best a mildly interesting game. We'll discuss Roy Hodgson's departure and the arrival of Oliver Glasner. Then there's Dan Ashworth's gardening leave, Chris Wilder's expensive sandwich and Mick Beale's burner Twitter account. All that plus your questions. And that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, Nikki Bandini, welcome. Morning. Hello, Archie Rintut. Hello. And hello, Barry Glendenning. Hiya. Uh, let's start at the San Siro, then into one Atleti nil. This, Nikki, is the Marco Arnautovic story, isn't it? I mean, the first <laughs> half was sort of cagey, teams cancelling each other out. Arnautovic came on. And then just kept missing chances until he eventually, not accidentally scored, that's a bit unfair, but <laughs> tried his best to miss the most guilt-edged of guilt-edged chances. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I sort of came full circle on, on Arnautovic all in one evening because um, I was with you on Stan Sports, obviously, Max. So um, you've already heard some some of my thoughts on this. But since coming to Inter, it has been a story that I think, yes, is familiar to, to plenty of fans from 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 previous stops on his journey where he is someone who missed a lot of chances. Of course, with Inter, it's, it's his second time there and, and there's this great um, overarching story with him almost because when he was there, in in the first instance with uh, Jose Mourinho as a uh, a young player trying to make his breakthrough and they had Ibrahimovic there and Hernan Crespo there and Adriano there Mourinho tells a story about Ibrahim about Anatovic walking up to him despite all those big names with this sort of total confidence about himself and saying I'm better than all of them which maybe he turned out not to be um but I actually I I, I sort of think if you listen to him after the game as well he has he has in the intervening more than a decade earned some humility and he was sort of talking about this game as as thinking god it's just one of those moments where things won't turn my way but the one great triumph of Arnautovic's career actually might be persistence which is funny because I think that's one of those qualities that when you're talking about elite football you don't think of it as the one you want to name you want to name brilliance you want to name technical skill you want to name um all these magical qualities but I think in lots of challenging careers to exist in persistence is probably the number one quality you should have it's certainly what you tell people if they want tell you want to be journalists and you say well just keep bloody going because it's hard to get into and I I think you have to sort of give him at least some credit for in a game where he did miss a couple of chances that were really good I mean the second one in particular is shocking miss um for being the guy who didn't let his head drop and just kept going after it and was indeed going after it enough to to be in the position to take that shot on the goal because actually, frankly, it wasn't a great finish from Lautaro before that who mm. should have probably scored himself. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting, isn't it, when you talk about persistence. When people say, don't take no for an answer and you sort of go, yes, but if Radio 1 have said you can't have the breakfast show, don't turn up <laughs> at 5 a.m. to do the breakfast show. They won't won't let you. Self-belief is really interesting, Barry, isn't it? Because obviously we remember Arnautovic as this sort of gobby kid who wasn't quite as good as he thought he was. 
But all players have to have self-belief. We just don't like it when they say it out loud. Like, like none of these people can be racked. I mean, it seems very unlikely that they're all racked with like complete doubts as they're you know running around being professional footballers. I think quite a lot of them can be. I mean, if you read Tony Cascarino's very highly regarded autobiography that he wrote with uh, the help of Paul Kimmage, the Irish journalist, he spent his entire career feeling that he wasn't worthy and always you know had this little voice in his head that always told him he wasn't good enough and he was going to miss and and uh Cass did have periods in his career where you know he couldn't hit a cow's arse with a banjo so i've no problem with anyone being full of self-regard if they've got the the game to back it up uh i quite admire it i think arnautovic he probably scored the most difficult of the three good chances he had last night and he had a bit of help I think got a bit of a deflection didn't it on its way in as Nicky alluded to there I think Latura Martinez you know he he should have scored a couple as well so overall it's a good win for Inter but they could end up regretting all those missed chances because they probably should have won by a lot more was I the only one who saw the excessive amount of drool that came out of Arnautovic after he missed <laughs> one of his big chances uh, well, um, I I didn't. No, I think yes. Do you know what I didn't? I didn't, I didn't focus on it. <laughs> well, well, I, but I, it, now you mention it, it, I feel like I should have spotted it. What, what you described as like a sort of a horse is like you know we get close to a horse or a or a camel. Like yeah. One of the criticisms I I've I've heard from non-footballing people before is you know footballers the way that they writhe about and they spit and and all this and I, and and seeing that from an out of it, I was like, ah oh, no. You make a good argument for spitting because that that does not look any better there. Like, I I I should probably say something about the football. I, I found. <laughs> I was going to say it's good to get your insight I, on all of this. Archie. I found yeah. the intensity, speed, and fluidity with which Inter attacked really impressive, and to, to be able to, particularly as somebody who's watched a lot of ploddy. As, as you put it the other day, Max, football recently with Bayern Munich and Borussia Dortmund, to see a team gel that together in such a way and have such a sense of purpose was so impressive. But also, I, I was I really liked some of Oblak's goalkeeping where you're, I'm, I'm expecting because of the speed of the shot that you're used to goalkeepers pushing it out. But the, the way that he was actually able and confident enough to, to catch some of these balls, which... I think I, I sometimes find myself thinking that when when I'm seeing goalkeepers go for shots and like surely you look at the speed that they're doing these drills with the goalkeeping coaches where they're catching all these balls from different angles and yet in a game they never seem to catch them at the same or trust themselves to catch them at the same speed. Um, but yeah, I, I thought that was impressive from from Oblak overall on the on the way the game went. I think one nil was probably a, a fair enough result. The whole the whole complexion around Arnautovic and as as Barry says, players I, I think who or just building on what Barry was saying, players who who warrant a team being built around them because they have a special enough talent that they don't need to change, and and those who don't. And Arnautovic I think has just been on, he's been on the border of that. I think for a mid table club, he probably had that. But to go and play at this level, he needed to sacrifice certain elements of himself. I think, I mean, Arnautovic came from Bologna, where actually he'd had 
one of the best chapters of his career. I felt like he scored 14 goals his first season there, 10 the second in only 20 odd games. Um, so he, he was scoring regularly at Bologna and it's, it's kind of, um, an interesting story in itself because Bologna didn't want to let him go, but 10 million for a player who's already into his mid thirties is, is hard to turn down in Italian football. And what's interesting is that Bologna have evolved in a completely new direction. That's much better for them because now they've got Joshua Zerxe up front. They're playing this completely different, um, more fluid football of their own under Tiago Motta. And it's, it's worked out great. Whereas Arnautovic went to Inter and it's worth saying that not long after arriving at Inter, he had this hamstring injury that kept him out for a, a solid stretch. And you combine that with hamstring injury coming back. And then, yes, he's missed some scandalous chances before last night for Inter. He's sort of been compiling a bit of a highlight reel of missed chances. So his sort of story to get to this point has has, has gone through some some struggles. And I think for him, it was definitely a big load off moment. But just to pick up on what Archie was saying about Inter, I, I feel like this is the thing that I've almost been like trying to scream at people for the last few months is sure Lazio's win over Bayern the other night I think there was plenty that was impressive about it I can talk to you about things I think Lazio Maurizio Sarri did really well and sometimes I watch Lazio and think even though they're in mid-table they, they do some smart things but Simone and Zaghi's Inter are a different animal they're playing top level so fast European football and um I think maybe this is one of those nights when people started to see it. They weren't perfect last night at all. In fact, in the first half, they were more cautious than I think they always are. But think about the fact that Atletico Madrid really didn't lay a glove on them for 90 minutes. They, it's the first time since 2006 in the Champions League that Inter haven't given up a shot on target at all. Um, they, they are they are playing really, really different football to anyone else in Italy. Um, and I think a different level of football to all but a very small handful of the top clubs in Europe. Hmm. I hope when you want to yell, you are just walking the streets of Brighton, <laughs> people in the street about actually Inter Milan, Inter Milan are better than than you think that think they are. Just <laughs> casually at, at, at the bus stop, yeah. Um, and look, they're nine successive win. They deserved it. I thought Dumfries made quite a big difference when he when he came on. Alvaro Morata did have that chance, which would change the whole complexion of this. You could be saying that about any game that I've seen Alvaro Morata play. You see, you couldn't because he's been on really great form, Morata. Like, like this was a bit of Chelsea Morata that we're all used to, but actually Atleti Morata this season has been a, a totally different animal. He missed this one. Like, it's perfectly poised, isn't it? Um, um, there were tributes before the game to former Inter player Andreas Bremer, uh, who's passed away at the age of 63, got 86 caps, uh, including eight goals, some quite important goals, uh, World Cup final, shootout, Mexico 86, um, played, you know, with, you know, those pictures of him, Klinsmann and Lothar Mateus in those Inter shirts with Trapattoni are, are amazing. How, how's the news been received in, in Germany? I mean, 63 is no age at all, is it, Archie? No, and particularly when he was seen at the Franz Beckenbauer memorial service just last month in in Munich, albeit he, I, I think it's it's fair to say he didn't look well. Um, still, it's it shocked a lot of people because... He, he he was a great of, of the German game. If there is a conversation to be had about a top German all-time 11, he's in that. Renowned for being one of the best, if not the best two-footed player that Germany had, even though he said that his left was p- for power and his right was for precision, there were other times where he just wasn't sure which which was his better foot. And the accidental hero of that 1990 World Cup final because... 
Rudy Furler was meant to take penalties, but because he was brought down for it, brought down um, is is a German view. Uh, he, uh, as a result, he was like, "Well, this is not mine to take." Lothar Matthäus changed his boots at half time, so wasn't feeling as comfortable. So it was left to Andy Bremer, and I. It was it was against a, a goalkeeper in uh, in Goicochea who uh, was was renowned in Germany at least or had had received the the tag uh, because of his his performance from penalties already as the elf meter killer the penalty killer uh, if, if you save a few penalties in Germany that's the tag you get and he stuck it away and did the business and and whilst that I I think is the overriding memory for people at a club level. Uh, he will be remembered very fondly as one of the greatest Kaiserslautern players of all time. The, the, the image that sticks in people's heads is actually when they went down um, in 1996, I think it was, and he was crying in Rudy Fuller's arms. And I think it was just this show of that he cared so much that really struck with people because fans these days don't think that that happens in quite the same way. He he did go on to be a manager, but I think the best way of putting it is he didn't have the rhetorical tools and was sometimes derided for how he sounded. And that meant that he couldn't sell himself the, the, the legacy that I think other players, when they go into the media after their career, they can they can give themselves that, that kind of picture. And Andy Bremer wasn't afforded that opportunity as a result. But one of the one of the greatest German players of of all time, not on that on that very very high pedestal with the likes of Franz Beckenbauer and Gerd Müller, but also uh, not not far away either. I, I was watching an interview um, he did when he was reflecting on that penalty he took in 1990 uh, this morning on YouTube, and he was saying that when he was placing the ball, Rudy Voller came up to him and said, "You know, if you score this, we're the world champions." And, he was thinking to himself, "All right, th- thanks for that, Rudy. <laughs> no, no pressure." <laughs> but he he also said that he didn't think it was a penalty. Uh, Sensini's foul on Voller, um, he thought it was a clean tackle, shouldn't have been a penalty. But it made up for all the other penalties they didn't get during this game against an Argentina side who were just a, a team of thugs. And you know, he did the world a favor scoring that penalty because if Argentina had won that World Cup it would have been awful they were, they were a horrible team I mean that is you know that, that two-footedness the fact that he took a penalty in 86 in a shootout in Mexico with his left foot and then took one in the final with his right foot is it's sort of unbelievable I, I wonder Nicky like that, that photo you know is so iconic of those three German players at Inter and I, maybe it's just me but in my mind they are kind of eclipsed by the Dutch three at, at AC Milan but like Perhaps not. Like, what an amazing trio to have. Yeah, I, I think I think your sort of feeling of them being eclipsed in, in the general consciousness, I think that's fair. I think that there was more done on on, um, on a European stage, perhaps by that um, by that group. But look, Bremer is absolutely an icon at Inter, one Serie, um, and and Beppe Bergomi, who's gone from being part of that inter team with him to being a one of the the firmest fixtures on on sky sport in italy um he was in tears yesterday and saying we have a group chat from that inter team and we we you know we 
I was in touch with him every couple of weeks. Like this is someone I was speaking to all the time. I think it's really like shocked a lot of people. Like you say, no age at all. Just one question on, on Serie A before we move on. Like Napoli are playing Barca t- t- tonight in in the Champions League. You know, having just sacked Walter, Ma- Walter Mazzari, uh, which has not been a, a, a great appointment, and bringing in Francesco Calzona, who was a coach under... Spalletti and Sarri, right? Yeah, exactly that. Um, so he has experience of Napoli. It's kind of mad mad to look at still. You think that Luciano Spalletti left Napoli and has gone and become the Italy manager and now you've got a different international team manager doing double duty with Slovakia to, to be in charge of you. Nobody thought Napoli were wrong to part ways with Rudy Garcia earlier this season, including myself. It didn't feel like a happy appointment. Aureli De Laurenti said at the time, oh, I should have sacked him on the day I heard in his first press conference. He said he didn't watch Napoli last season. But Rudy Garcia left Napoli in fourth. Um, under Walter Mazzari, they've slipped to ninth. They've scored, I think, nine goals in their last 12 games. So the, the ship is... In Italy, they talk about caretaker managers. They use this word, traghettatore, which means a ferryman. That's someone who's supposed to just get your ferry from here to the other side and then we'll work it out afterwards. But the boat is taking on water rapidly under Mazzari. So a change makes some sense does a change to a manager who's never managed a club side on his own before and who has another job and uh, and has, what, two days to prepare for a Champions League game against Barcelona. Does that make sense? I'm not so sure. But um, it'll be another fascinating chapter in this um, always colourful Napoli story, I suppose. All right, that'll do for part one. Uh, part two, uh, we'll begin with the other game, Dortmund's draw at PSV. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, so PSV won, Dortmund won. Um, what did you make of that, Archie? I thought that Dortmund were fortunate in the end. If you looked at the balance of play to to come away with the 1-1 draw and it fits into how they've been playing this season, which is largely disappointing. And that's that's put a lot of pressure on Edin Terzic as the coach. The fact that uh, in the winter break, it was a big thing of whether he would or wouldn't keep his job. He did, but had to take on two new assistants um, in, in the new year in club legends, Nuri Shaheen and Sven Bender. And it is... Kind of forced upon him. Or... Yeah. And and that, uh, it's, it's kind of seen that Nuri Shaheen might well take over in the summer should, should Terzic not make it past then, which I can see right now because Dortmund fans um, bemoan the lack of a, of a coherent plan under Terzic and being able to see uh, some, some sort of fluid football under him. Um, and the way that, for example, other teams in the leagues like Leverkusen and Stuttgart are able to work it forward in in a much smoother fashion, whereas Dortmund don't really seem to know what they're doing and be relying on individual prowess up front to to get them out of trouble. And I think that having been held up in previous years by great individual talents, such as Jude Bellingham, Erling Haaland, Jadon Sancho back in his first time at the club, it's been, Dortmund have been shown for not having a real kind of greater overall plan. And last night, I think against a, a PSV side who who are very much punching above their weight and had Johan Bakayoko been, 
I think, not as surprised as he was when he got to two of these chances that, oh, I'm in here. Uh, they might have got a better result. That, that, that There's a big noise about the penalty that was given away by, by Mats Hummels. And Mats Hummels raced on to German TV to talk about it. I'm sure he does get a touch on the ball, but I, if you're going in in a, as wild a fashion and with such risk as he is, then then under the current circumstances which he's playing, I can understand why the referee gives it, even if Hummel says that Malik Tillman um, was laughing at him uh, on the pitch after having uh, won that penalty off him. So, yeah, I, I, I thought that PSV very much earned a draw, could have, could have got more as well. But this Dortmund team, the the pieces of the puzzle do not fit together. And it's not just about Terzic. It is about a wider transfer strategy of, I think, putting too much emphasis on bringing in and giving so much power to young players where actually what's left behind is uh, a weakened overall structure. Maybe when Bakayoko had those chances... Rudy Vollett's voice just whispered in his ear. He might, <laughs> might score here. That's that's what he's been doing ever, ever since he hung up his boots. Uh, Nikki, you wanted to come in. Yeah, I was just curious um, to hear from Archie, like how much the Peter Bosch story has been a part of the build-up to this game, um, obviously with his pass to Dortmund. Peter Bosch said in his press conference before that this PFC, that this that this PSV side was the best team he's ever worked with. And I thought, well... Is, is that because you only had 16 games at Dortmund where the first seven of which you won six and then uh, and then went winless for the final, actually final nine it was in the end. So that, that has certainly added a spicy element to it, particularly for Dortmund to come through that, that group of death. And then the first person they face is, is Peter Bosch, who, who, who has, you know, an unbeaten team uh, in in the Netherlands and has really got people to buy into his strategy, even if he says that he's not changed at all, which I, I think has, has probably been his downfall since then, uh, since, since since Dortmund as well. That how how he compromises has, has been a problem, but it, it is impressive to see with a squad which it, it does, sure. I mean, Chucky Lozano, for example, I, is is a player who who has played. Uh, on on the big stage before, um, and I think that you you see that there is the potential there at PSV, but they don't have the same. Uh, they've got they've got prover point players like Luke De Jong, for example, and I, I think that 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 can be a very powerful mixture in football when when you've got players like that who feel like they've been wronged and feel like they they have something to show you, and it's why even ahead of the second leg. Max, I, I know you think that that Dortmund should should go through here, but like maybe I'm too close to the situation and having seen so much of Dortmund this season and so many ninety minutes, where I'm just thinking, what what is going on here? That then when they have turned up in the Champions League, I've come away being like, what? I just don't get it, and I still don't really understand this team. Well, PSV are, are running away at the top of the Eredivisie and, and Lozano is a fascinating case for me as well, I think, because he's still only 28 years old. He's one of those players who you feel like has lived a whole career and, and should be sort of in that. He's at PSV. Sort of I feel like he played at USA 94. <laughs> That's what I feel. <laughs> 
Um, so there's, there's, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think people may be a little bit too dismissive of, of PSV at the moment as well. There was one element, um, Nikki, uh, just to, to finish on the on the Peter Bosch narrative, where I, I think Mats Hummels was was striking back at Peter Bosch, um, even though he wasn't there actually when he was at the club. Uh, where he he described after the game as PSV being very beatable opposition tonight. Um, Arsenal go to Porto, Napoli, Barca. We've we, we've mentioned already. You've said previously, Barry. You think Arsenal have got quite a good tilt at this competition? I think you might be right. Don't know if I said they have a, a good chance of winning it. I just from what I've seen so far, they're probably the team that's best equipped to stop Manchester City, and I think. If if you want to win this competition, you will have to beat Manchester City. So yeah, I'd, I'd give them a decent shout. Not not a great one, but on the evidence of what I've seen so far in this competition, there, you know, uh, I would probably say Liverpool are the best equipped team to win the competition. Except they're not in it. <laughs> uh, so I feel the same about Leverkusen. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're, they're, but a lot of people are saying that Europa League final could be. I mean, obviously, we don't know what the draw could be. Liverpool, Leverkusen could be the two best teams. Yeah, yeah. and actually, that the Champions League this year is slightly sort of watered down um, because of you know the form of Napoli and Barca and, and Bayern as well. So I'm not definitively saying Arsenal win the Champions League, <laughs> but I'd, I'd give them a chance. I, I know quite a few Arsenal fans, and none of them—they're all very preoccupied with the league, and none of them. Seem to be even entertaining. The I'd settle for the Champions League. Yeah. I'd settle for <laughs> if, that, if that's all we can have this season. Well, that's okay. Wow, how gracious of you! <laughs> yeah, uh, let's do a bit of Bundesliga stuff. I mean, do, is is Thomas Tuchel now on borrowed time, Archie? What's you know? There's some amazing rumours. Jose Fum, Solskjaer. I mean, that's great. Um, and obviously, Xabi Alonso, who's now going. I'm a legend at Liverpool. I could go there. I'm a legend at Bayern. I could go there. I was pretty good at Real Madrid. Ancelotti won't stay there forever. Like. He's really like he is. He is adding noughts on the end of his whatever salary he'll get, presuming he leaves Leverkusen at the end of this season. So, was your question about Bayern or Leverkusen? <laughs> I don't know. There were a lot of things in there, weren't there? You know, and and you know, one of the first lessons is just ask simple questions. So, my many apologies, and you're right to pick me up on it. Let's start with Bayern. Tuchel, how is he on borrowed time? It feels like that. Even if the message from the that comes out of the club is that. They want to stick with him for now. I struggle to see how if they were to lose against RB Leipzig at home this weekend, which Thomas Tuchel's already done twice in his time in charge, how he would make it past that, particularly because it doesn't seem like the team is is really behind him. The biggest headlines after the defeat away at Bochum on the weekend were, were a fallout, was a fallout even between Joshua Kimmich, who has found himself degraded under Thomas Tuchel um, on quite a few occasions. Um, and uh, between him and Scholt Love, Thomas Tuchel's assistant coach. And uh, the the details of that conversation um, have, have been reported by uh, Sportbuild here about Kimmich saying, how can you take me off? Uh, but also that Schultz Love is the person that he gets on best with out of Tuchel's backroom team and they often exchange ideas. So there's there's a lot to take out of it in, in terms of how I think there is just a, a disconnect in the the players 
taking on his ideas and you can see them thinking so often on the pitch when you're so used to seeing a fluent Bayern Munich team going forward. And I think there's just too many fires that have been needed to put out. Not all of, I mean, definitely not all of Thomas Tuchel's making, but still, I think your challenges are, as a top coach, is to make uh, a unit where you've got lots of good players work. And Thomas Tuchel's argument seems to be that he doesn't have those. He doesn't believe in Joshua Kimmich being a, a, a good enough holding midfielder for him. He wants he wants somebody else. He wanted Jao Pelina in to do that. So in this case, you're left with a Bayern team which has had Harry Kane scoring lots of goals, who then at the weekend had his worst game for Bayern so far, missing two chances, which just prompted the German TV commentator to go, wow, both times. And a team where the noises from the players post-games are very different from the noises that Tuchel's making. And that suggests that everybody is not uh, on the same wavelength, to say the least. So who comes in? No idea. But the problem for Bayern is they set the precedent by making that wild choice of getting Tuchel in for Nagelsmann when it didn't seem that dramatic, when it was more about, when it wasn't really a football decision, it was more about a personal decision to, to sack Julian Nagelsmann and that they didn't like him. And they set themselves a precedent that they are struggling to get out of. How's Eric Dyer getting on? Okay. (laughs) Okay, but in itself, this presented a problem to me as well, where it was, there was an article which said one of the positives from the Leverkusen game where he played in the back three, as as, as part of three central defenders, was that he was there to to help conduct Deo Upamecano and um, Minjay Kim. And I'm thinking... These two, these two players who, I'm sorry, are on a different level to Eric Dyer as defenders. They need somebody to tell them what to do. That that is a problem. You need that the, they need somebody to communicate for them, and that's just showing you how with with Bayern, there this team does not really fit together, and their promises to be big changes in the summer. When Bayern Munich are called boring by their CEO Jan Christian Dresen. Um, after their defeat to Werder Bremen, it was. That tells you that Thomas Tuchel has not got things going in the right direction. And do you think Alonso would go there over Liverpool? Have I asked you that before? I feel like I've asked you that before. You haven't, but I don't think he would. I think he can see the, uh, yeah, the fire that is burning very bright at Bayern. And Xabi Alonso strikes me as somebody who would be smart enough to to avoid that. The the football, by the way, that they're playing. I've been fortunate enough to be sent to watch a lot of Leverkusen so far in 2024. And it's this pep-like confidence in their own style that no matter what happens, we will keep playing our way. I, I say pep-like. I mean, he, he's known to change things himself a lot, but early pep, maybe? Um it's it's really impressive and everybody everybody knows their role. Granit Xhaka is brilliant both as a leader and what he gives to the team in in terms of structure. Florian Wirtz uh is 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 the star of this team, the way that he's able to pick the right tool to to get past almost any opponent, whether it's dribbling, whether it's passing, just sensing the right moment and the right decision. And that they've had lots of injuries, players away at the African Cup of Nations and still managed to plough through and still be unbeaten. 
and win so many games late on and smash Bayern with the control that they did in that game. It's so impressive. And yeah, I think Xabi Alonso's got the pick of whatever job he wants after Leverkusen. The question is when he will leave. Uh, finally, Robin says, there are more anecdotes about the German Sean Deich. Uh, uh, Heidenheim's gaffer Frank Schmidt from Archie, please. So this was a lot of fun. <laughs> I, um, I went down to Heidenheim at the weekend, right? And for context, I, I had to check exactly where Heidenheim was. My, I, 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 like, I like knowing or, or going to these places as much as anyone, but I wasn't 100% sure. I knew it was somewhere between Stuttgart and Munich. And when I got on the motorway from Stuttgart to, to, to Heidenheim, it tails off very quickly into the countryside. And when you go to Heidenheim, unlike any other Bundesliga ground, you feel like you are going very much into the sticks. And yet there, Frank Schmidt has a magical story where he was born and raised in the area. He's been the coach there since 2007 and has made, has got four promotions with them in that time, the final one being into the Bundesliga last summer. And he is... Uh, he's quite an avuncular figure. I, 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 it's not many clubs where I turn up press officer comes and introduces himself to me and the press officer then br- br- brings over the coach to say oh Frank wants to say hello I was like okay this is this is a bit strange this doesn't happen at Bayern Munich no and then during the game I, Heidenheim it should be said are going to stay up which is incredible because on their budget they should get nowhere near it during the game there's this woman who's next to me who is loudly banging on the table whistling the referee every time you know, she's uh, of a slightly greater vintage, shall we say. And uh, I, I turned to her, I was like, could you, uh, I'm just trying to, oh, sorry, sorry, all good. No, no worries. Oh, where are you from? I'm, I'm from England. Oh, okay. Oh, um, you know Frank Schmidt? Well, well yeah, he's the coach. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, yeah. I used to be his music teacher. I was like, you're kidding me. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he wasn't very good. He was much better at football. But <laughs> once upon a time, uh, when he was 11, there was a football tournament that we were trying to that that we were thinking about entering and we decided against it and Frank said no 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 leave it to me I'll organize it and they were like are you sure you're 11 and they're like yeah 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 it's fine he organized it they won the tournament and you're like how can you be showing that you're a good coach even at the age of 11 um yeah incredible story incredible place just everybody was so friendly and yeah, one of one of the great stories in in German football right now that even though they lost at the weekend, that that was their first loss in eight eight games, which was the second longest unbeaten run in the Bundesliga aside from Leverkusen. Uh, they're going to stay up, and it is it's overshadowed because of what Leverkusen and Stuttgart are doing in the league right now. But yeah. Tremendous story. Lovely story. Uh, all right, that'll do for part two. Part three, we'll do uh, the Premier League and City's win over Brentford. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, so the Premier League table looks like this. Liverpool, 57 points from 25. Man City, 56 from 25. Arsenal, 55 from 25. It's absolutely brilliant. Uh, Richard says, our City still in crisis. Kevin, where's Ethan Pinnock where you need him? He wouldn't have slipped for that Haaland goal. Um, they won, Barry. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't convincing and Brentford were good, but they did what they needed to do. Well, I suppose the first thing to say about this game is there was no way of watching it. Uh, legally in the UK, which... We could is, go to the Etihad. You could, yeah. Yes. 
That is legal. It's a long way away on a Tuesday when I have to be up early the next no, next day. But um, Brentford obviously did the double over Manchester City last season, the only team to do that. Set up very defensively, had 10 men behind the ball and tried to, you know, we're hoping to hit them on the break or do something with a set piece. We, we'd all know how good Brentford could be from set pieces. And didn't really work out for them. They had a couple of half chances. But uh, for a while, they restricted City to, to long-range efforts from Foden, from Alvarez, from Akanji. Uh, Bernardo Silva missed a sitter with a header after Kyle Walker had headed across the face of goal. Uh, Ruben Diaz brought a brilliant save out of Flecken with a header. Oscar Bob beat Flecken, uh, only for Ben Mee to, to save Brentford with a clearance off the line. And eventually, Manchester City scored with a there was a through ball through the centre for uh, Haaland to chase. Christopher Iyer looked like he would intercept it, but he slipped, and that meant Haaland had a clear run on goal and, and shot from inside the D and, and scored into the corner. Uh, so, yeah, a hard one three points for City but they they were vastly superior just uh, I think it probably would have been easier for them if Kevin De Bruyne had been playing but he sat this one out because he did sort of felt something in his hammy they didn't want to risk him I still think City will run away with it which is clearly ridiculous now we're getting quite close to like the end of the season and maybe I'm wrong because then they you know at the moment okay in the last few weeks but you know Arsenal are the team that look the most convincing and probably and may unarguably City the least out of the three. Yeah, I, I think run away with it becomes less and less likely the closer we get to the end. Uh, do I still think City will win it? Probably I'm with you on that, Max. I think in the end, I still expect City somehow to to be on top of the pile. But I mean, even this weekend, it's it's one thing to, to run up the scores against teams such as West Ham when they are falling into history. Not that West Ham are always a pushover, but they did really fall apart against Arsenal. Um, and it's a different thing. Even this weekend, Arsenal have Newcastle, who probably going to to not ship six goals. I could be wrong. Maybe, maybe they will. But I, I think there's, there's still, there's still quite a few big games left for all of these teams. I think that's the thing. And and I think it's it's easy to, to to see to see the wins that look straightforward. Um, obviously, I didn't get to watch all of City's game last night with the Champions League on, but. It sounds like it was a fairly straightforward win, even though the scoreline wasn't. But there, there will be games that that define this run, and um, and perhaps this just one wasn't one of them. There was that chance for Frank Onyeka early on at nil nil, where you thought if he just took one more yeah. step before shooting, then then he's in. But this is the thing with Manchester City. This is the paradox. They kid you into thinking that they're fragile enough to be attacked. <laughs> <laughs> and then the next day, the next game, they're going to go and beat you 6-0. So I, I'm, I'm, I don't think City will do it this season. I don't know what it is, but I think the, the without Gundogan factor still plays heavy in my mind. Yeah. I think that it's it's someone else's. That's that's how far I'll stick my neck out the window. <laughs> I do think it's really interesting. They're all really close on goal difference as well, because I think that's almost sometimes more untypical with, with a City yeah. Premier League. You almost expect to see City's goal difference like 20 goals better than anyone else, and it isn't. Liverpool's 35, City 32, Arsenal 36. 
at the moment. I've had a good couple of weeks, Arsenal. To be fair, uh, to be fair on that one, um, it's interesting, Barry. You mentioned that it's not on on TV in the UK, nor is Liverpool Luton, which is tonight. It is different to the three PM blackout, isn't it? It seems mad that you can't watch these games. I could live without seeing them. There are ways to see them. <laughs> uh, it's certainly not the end of the world. But I just think if you're paying, you know, a grand plus a year for subscriptions to watch football, every game should be available to you. Yeah. Is it because it's a Champions League night? I mean, is that why it is, presumably? Yeah, they, they used to not allow them to schedule on Champions League nights at all. Even that's relatively recent, isn't it? That's the last um, two or three years. I think that's even been allowed. It was it was completely not allowed for a while. I'm, I'm certain that's why it's not on TV, because Champions League rights are expensive and, and, and firmly defended. I, I mean... Of course, not every game gets to be scheduled. And I'm, I'm sort of, to a great degree, I agree with Baz because I think that in 2024, if people really want to watch games, they'll find a way anyway because every game can be found somewhere on the internet if you're willing to look for it. Um, so why not just actually package these things properly and sell them? But the reason it's not on British TV at the moment is because if you're going to play them on Tuesday and Wednesday night when there's a Champions League game on, Champions League rights are going to get um, that precedence, I think. That was a very under-the-radar advert for VPN there, Nikki. <laughs> Dodgy sticks. <laughs> I, I know a guy if anyone wants one. Um, everyone did get the chance, though, Barry, legally to watch Everton Palace. How lucky they were. Yes, uh, this is a game that lived entirely up to my expectations. It's probably the kindest thing I can say about it. A draw, I suppose, a point, any point's a good point if you're in the position of these teams. Uh, poor game. Jordan Ayew put Palace ahead with a shot from out of nowhere really good good strike from the edge of the penalty area and Everton equalised to nobody's great surprise through a corner uh, Sam Johnson came for a ball at least I hope it was Sam Johnson after my West Ham goalkeeper debacle I, I think it was Sam Johnson <laughs> it was it was it was he came <laughs> Yeah, seem to remember seeing Dean Henderson okay, on right. the bench and Sam and Johnson. If it was Dean Henderson, I don't want to make a mistake either. It was Gabor yeah, Kiraly who, who great job who didn't come for the corner, uh, flapping in the breeze, came for a corner, <laughs> didn't get it, and Amadou Janana scored with an excellent header. Uh, 1-1, game over, and thank God for that. We don't have to watch Everton play Crystal Palace again this season. <laughs> um, it's a bit of a shame that... Um, Every Crystal Palace keeper after Kiralee isn't forced to wear those grey tracksuit trousers and just be like, hand me downs. This is your this is your kit, Sam. Uh Roy Hodgson stepped down as Palace Manager on Monday. He'd been taken ill on Thursday. Um his statement on the club's website said, Look, this club is very special, means so much to me. I fully enjoyed my time here across six seasons. It's given me the chance to work with top class players and staff doing what I love every day. I understand, given recent circumstances, it may be prudent at the time, at this time, for the club to plan ahead, and therefore I've taken the decision to step aside so the club can bring forward their plans for a new manager it has intended for this summer. I'm confident this season will finish well, and I wish the team every success in the weeks, months, and seasons to come. Um, I mean, you obviously love Roy Hodgson, Archie, as a, as a Fulham fan. Uh, and it's a sort of sad... I mean, I, I kind of feel for Palace's owners in a way. like They could have handled it better, but then, you know... If he's taken ill and go, you can't, you can't plan for that. I guess, can you? Do we appreciate how many English managers there are? Uh, that th- there aren't many who who are able to 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 get to the level that that he has. Um, I think though that 
in a way, he does represent what English football is, which is that we don't have with with many of our coaches uh, enough of a an imagination in how in how we play. Do enough go abroad like Roy Hodgson have? Probably not. Um, but but then again, Roy Hodgson went abroad and, and and managed in all these places, and yet the football he's he's come back to play is is pretty disciplined. I think what's changed mostly is just how we view it. You look at the the whole arguments around West Ham right now with, you know, are they entertaining enough? And I just don't think these were debates that were being had 15 years ago. I remember when Fulham was so successful under Roy Hodgson, no one really cared that it was get the ball down the channels for Andy Johnson or up to, to Bobby Zamora. It was, we're getting results as an underdog here. And the the thing that's changed everything is the amount of money that the mid-table teams now have because, and I do get where West Ham fans come from. West Ham fans can see the amount of talent that someone like Mohamed Kudus has uh, and and they can see that David Moyes is, is using him in a very um, conservative manner. And I think that those expectations of the mid-table fans have gone up because they can see the quality that these players have they're more informed than ever before about how good these players are. And yet, I think they feel like their teams are playing with a handbrake on more often than not. So I think that, yeah, Roy Hodgson is a little bit a victim of the times, but should still, should still and will be regarded as a very good coach, even if his biggest jobs in England did not go to plan. Um, what will Oliver Glasner bring? As a person, he gets on well with the players, but once he gets an idea into his head, he's difficult to talk round. You just want to ask the sporting directors, uh, previous sporting directors at Wolfsburg, or partly of Liverpool, Jörg Schmatke and at Frankfurt, Marcus Kirscher, how, how that went when it came to having different ideas. The fact that he left Wolfsburg after getting them into the Champions League... <laughs> tells you that uh, if he's if he's against the general way of doing things, he'll go. But when it comes to the football side of things, uh, his teams at their best were very good at getting the ball forward quickly, being very aggressive without the ball and trying to take the game into their own hands. He was a flexible coach when it came to, to finding uh, the right method of, of beating opponents and to win the Europa League with Eintracht Frankfurt in the way he did was and is a stunning, unique achievement to go to Barcelona and win with that Frankfurt side as well is something that that will never be forgotten. So yeah, the question is now, how do you adapt to the Premier League mid-table merry-go-round? Because it is, it's it's a completely different environment. But I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing how he gets on. I think part of its part of his success will be how he communicates with the fans. Jeff says, morning, Max. Is the pod convinced Dan Ashworth is the new Messiah? Um, Johnny Lou wrote a good piece. David Squires um, has done a nice cartoon as well. Um, Newcastle want 20 million, Barry. And Dan Ashworth is currently on everybody's dream, gardening leave. Or is he Is he on gardening leave? I think he is. He is, yes. Tending to his rhododendrons and preparing his seed beds for the spring ahead. I think Newcastle are well within the rights to ask for 20 million for him. 
that's, you know, considering the amount of money, much larger sums United have spaffed on rubbish signings, uh, why shouldn't they ask for or Newcastle demand that kind of compensation? I don't really know what Dan Ashworth does. I don't know if he's any good at it, but he's clearly held in very high regard. So if United want him, why shouldn't they have to pay for him? 20 million isn't that much in the cosmic scheme of things, football-wise. I think they should ask for more. Always interested that managers don't cost more, you know. Why is it so, you know, managers, we yeah. spend so much time talking about managers, and they're clearly really quite important, but they don't cost as much as I mean, as you Chris. can spend 50 million on a bang average fullback these days. Why shouldn't you spend 20 million on somebody who is apparently the glue that's going to hold the club together? That's how Tony Mowbray described Ashworth at West Brom. Uh, Ashworth himself describes his role as being like the hub of this wheel with the, all the different spokes being the different departments, you know, youth, men's team, women's team, medic- medicine and fitness, sports science, recruitment, all that stuff. So, you know, if you know you want him badly enough, why shouldn't they? Yeah, have to I, mean, I, was, I was just laughing at Baz saying 20 million isn't very much. And I think it's a very Premier League view of the world. I think Archie's probably winning with me that. Um, I'm, I'm talking in Premier League terms. But yes, you're it's, right. At the top of the Premier League, um, money doesn't really mean a lot, does it? It's all just coming out of some um, billionaire or, or nation state's uh, pocketbook anyway. Who cares what the number is? Um, and um, I suppose, uh, as I always say with transfers, players are worth as much as they are to you in the end if, if you've got the money and you're willing to spend it if you think Dan Ashworth is this important you're willing to spend it um, I, uh, I, I I couldn't possibly comment 20 million pounds to me is uh, a bonkers amount of money but um, of course I'm not someone running a Premier League football club yeah um, Chelsea have uh, taken a, a Brighton's head of recruitment which is basically shithouse I mean, isn't it of the highest order you know uh, Sam Jewell uh, the 13th Brighton employee uh, leaving for Chelsea in the last 19 months. You know, there should be a direct train line, shouldn't they? Yes, Maybe the smartest thing Brighton could do would be to appoint a red herring of a figure of being the head of their scouting <laughs> department now. <laughs> just just next time, so I'm like, yes, this is the guy you want to take. Just some out-of-work actor. Yeah, just, you know, just keep feeling <laughs> terrible players. You know, just some extra from Death in Paradise. Yeah, so John does say, wouldn't it mean cheaper if Bowley had just bought the Albion instead? It's a, quite a good point. Anthony says, has Chris Wilder just paid for the world's most expensive sandwich? He's been fined £11,500 by the FA for his <laughs> remark about a sandwich-eating assistant referee, which is... I think they're more than that at WH Smith's in train stations. Impossible, impossible. <laughs> you, the meal deal, though, the meal deal possible i think a service station a service station costa you know <laughs> that that panini that's burning your mouth is you know upwards of that uh, henry says any of you uh, have any of you ever had any um football burner accounts in which you'll post to defend yourselves against mistakes you've made on the pod <laughs> uh, this barrier is related to sunderland's former manager mick beale uh, who appears to have been defending himself on twitter but not with his own Twitter handle. Yeah, it's a weird one. Uh, some guys in a, a an EFL podcast have sort of done some investigating and discovered, as you say, that McBeal appears to have been defending himself against detractors on Twitter with an account that was not in his name but seems to have been traced back to him or some company he owns. I suppose it's fair enough. It seems slightly odd behaviour, but uh, 
he's he's entitled to stick up for himself either personally or anonymously. I'm just glad he's gone from Sunderland, to be honest. It was a terrible appointment. He was very much second choice behind Will Still at, at Stade de Rem. He came in, he I think he only won four matches out of twelve. His first game was a hammering at the hands of Coventry City. Then there was that FA Cup third round game at Stadium Light against Newcastle, in which um Sunderland just were pathetic. It was a feeble effort against their most bitter rivals. Uh, he had a habit of play, throwing players under the bus. He referred to the fans as as outside noise, which <laughs> you know, they, they, they were against him from the get-go. So Surely he, they're inside noise. I mean, yeah, literally, well, they're quite literally very inside, much noise. inside noise. Uh, so he just doesn't seem to be a very good communicator uh, and he doesn't do himself any favours at press conferences. Uh, he's, he's very good. And that was the same at Rangers. And, um, yeah, bad appointment. He's gone. Sunderland have an interim manager now for the foreseeable future, probably till the end of the season. In uh, It's Michael Dodds. And, I mean, I, I wonder, uh, watching the most recent series of Sunderland Till I Die, they were interviewing Jack Clark, who's, you know, their standout player, really. And he was saying that when when he signed for them or no when he went there on loan he from spurs he was quite skeptical because he he said i've seen the the previous two series of sunderland till i die and it basically came across as a really dysfunctional club but i brocked up here and no sooner had he arrived than lee johnson got sacked and he was thinking oh here we go so i i a penny for for jack clark's thoughts now but I presume he'll be sold on in the summer and probably can't wait to get out of there. <laughs> uh, some breaking news uh, from uh, Florian Plettenberg. I presume you know, Archie, uh, exclusive news. After good and fair discussions, FC Bayern and Thomas Tuchel have decided to part ways at the end of the season. So uh, that's the news, which we don't have time to react to, Archie, but we basically said that sort of thing would happen <laughs> about half an hour ago. So uh, I don't know if you have any... Very strong thoughts, Archie, before we end the pod. The fact that Bayern seem to be saying that, no, 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 we're not letting the players get away with it this time. You've got to sit in the boat with him till the end of the season. <laughs> Seems like a way of, of trying to punish the players as well and finally trying to hold them to account. But I think it still, it still reeks of the club not thrashing about in the dark. The big thing for Bayern on the horizon is the fact that the Champions League final is in Munich next season. And there is still a lot of pain felt, even if they won it the, the next season at Wembley in 2013, there's still a lot of pain felt about 2012 and they are desperate to get that right. That also suggests that they think that if they want to get a candidate that they want, i.e. a Xabi Alonso, who I still don't think will, will be that guy, um, then they, they have to wait till the summer. And the Fulham ticket prices are still very high. Thanks, cheers. Uh, not a problem. Uh, all right, that'll do for today. Uh, thanks, Baz. Thanks. Thanks, Archie. Thanks. Thanks, Nikki. Thanks, Max. I'll see you in about 10 hours. <laughs> Absolutely right. Uh, yeah, uh, I was just about to do a big advert for Stan Sport, but it's probably not Guardian policy. Anyway, <laughs> if you're in Australia, you know where to come for the Champions League tonight, uh, tomorrow morning, whatever it is. For Weekly is produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Danielle Stevens. 
This is The Guardian.